Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusczak, art critic of the Sunday Times in London, although the few friends I've got sometimes call me Waldy. But I'm joined on this podcast by a man who's surrounded by friends. Everybody loves him, not just me. His fellow art historians love him. His fellow art connoisseurs love him. And his fellow TV giants well, they would love him if only there were more of them. But they're all too short. They just can't match him for height. Because he's six foot plus of raw art historical talent. He is, of course, Bendor, Bendy, Grosvenor, the laird of Loch Lomond. Bendy, how's it going up there in Scotland? Very good indeed. Thank you, Weldy. Spring has sprung. It's a little bit warmer. I've only got two jumpers on today in the attic recording studio. Uh, would that it were true that my fellow art historians love me. <laughs> Sadly, it's not. But the, in this world, Weldy, there's only one person whose love I need, and that is yours. And I'm so lucky to have it. Oh, you've got it. Unconditional, full on. Um, but you are tall, aren't you? I mean, how tall are you, Bendy? You, how tall? I am six foot four inches. Six foot four. That's ridiculously tall for an art historian. You must go around <laughs> stooping in all the art galleries and get a cricking neck from looking at the pictures. Um, I'm six foot four as well, but that's around the waist. Uh, <laughs> Height-wise, uh, I'm afraid I'm considerably less. Just a strapping five foot ten and a half, I reckon. In my mind, I'm always looking up to you, though, Wildy. Yeah, it's a, it's a better height for looking at art, I think, than six foot four, because most museums are hung at an average height, right? So I suppose so, yeah. Maybe that, that might explain why I've got such an excellent posture. Um, <laughs> anyway, Bendy, it's a particularly full podcast today. Everything seems to be happening at once. Uh, we're looking at some big news in the art world. There's lots to discuss. We've got a really important anniversary. Uh, they don't come much dodgier than the dodgy one that we're celebrating. And then later on, I'm going to Istanbul. While you, Bendy, you've got a fascinating interview about a really important art issue, something we all need to think about. And somehow, we have got to squeeze all these things into this podcast. Though, as you know, at least I hope you do by now, everything we talk about, all the pictures, all the art, it's all illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. Or, as our new listeners in America prefer it, zczfilms.com because we used to have just three listeners in america but now we have seven we're an international family aren't we bendy <laughs> yes i heard from someone on twitter the other day uh, listening in alaska who may be our most northern listener but we we really love hearing from you uh, we're both on twitter so do always get in touch it's such a pleasure to hear from you it is. It's always great to hear from the North Pole. But yes, you're so right. And, and we are, we're an international family. So I wonder where our international calendar is taking us today. Dodgy, dodgy, dodgy anniversary. Oh, Bendy. If you get out your world book of dates and look up 2021, you'll see that it's the 298th anniversary of the birth of a hugely significant British artist. Now, he was born in 1723 in Plimpton in Devon. I think it's fair to say 
he divides opinion. Not everyone likes him, but you can't argue about his importance. Or can you? Bendy, where do you stand on Sir Joshua Reynolds? Sir Joshua Reynolds, well, I think is a legend in British art. I love his work. I love pretty much everything he did. I can see that he divides opinions sometimes, but that's only because he was trying to break out of the, the straitjacket of the limitations of British art at the time, which was mainly paint my portrait or I'm not going to pay you to do anything, pal. Um, but you, I'm glad you mentioned his birth in Plimpton in Devon because his story is, is an example of how art really, in an age of class and, and such rigid societies, art is one of the few sort of really meritocratic uh, things that you could latch on to um, in Britain in the 18th century because he, you know, born to not terribly wealthy circumstances, he emerges from Devon, uh, goes on a trip to Italy and comes back and conquers um, British art and carries on painting until 1789 when he lost sight in his left eye and then retired. Um, th there are not many areas of British art that he didn't leave his mark on and I think that's an extraordinary achievement for a boy born in Devon. Mm. He was terribly powerful, though, wasn't he? I mean, wherever he came from, and of course, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about the meritocracy that was around at the time. But uh, he, you know, he, he, you consider what a big shadow he cast over British art. I mean, you know, you know, he was the first president of the Royal Academy. I mean, he's there at the top for whatever it is, 40, 50 years nearly. You know, he's got the king as a client. He rules it over the British art world in a rather pompous fashion. I mean, he is, apart from anything else, this rather terrifying authority figure, isn't he? I mean, I've always found him someone I'm sort of nervous about approaching. And his art's a bit like that. It's not the most accessible or the most easily likable art around, is it? Oh, I don't know, actually. I have to say, I've never found his art sort of an intimidating presence. I don't sense too much pomposity now. In fact, if you were to judge him purely by his self-portraits, I would say he sometimes presents himself as rather a, a vulnerable person. Um, but there's a, there's a difference, I think, in his work. Sorry to interrupt you, but there is a big difference in his work between things that you feel are personal, which is, of course, the self-portraits, and then something I hope we get onto, which is his portraits of, of the women that he liked or fancied or had affairs with and then his more public art it's it's the public art that I have more of the issues with especially those pictures of generals and admirals uh, and commanders of the British army that he churned out um, <laughs> who form this rather sort of absurd battalion of great British heroes with their chests stuck out and their <laughs> pristine uniforms I mean it's all you know it's it's postage stamp art it's a, it's an idea of Britishness which I just find as I said daunting to me it's the opposite of, of informal I mean it's absolutely a formal idea of what a great British wartime hero should be like. <laughs> They're the ones that make me nervous. Well, yeah, some of them are ridiculous. Like I'm thinking in my mind, uh, for example, of his portrait of uh, the Prince of Wales, later George IV, as a huge equestrian portrait. And George IV is shown as this handsome strapping figure who's practically single-handedly just defeated a French army somewhere and not the bloated, corpulent, uh, lazy layabout that he really was. But we have to remember that portraiture, which, as I said at the beginning, is pretty much um, all at this point in British history that a British artist can really try to make a living doing. Um, it's always a contest, isn't it, between what the sitter wants and what the artist wants. And Reynolds himself, you know, he did say, well, I could, I could teach anyone to paint a likeness in six months. And he tried to steer away from just painting people as they were because I suppose if you're a portrait painter and you're doing it as you say for 40 or 50 years 
it can get a little bit tiresome. And I don't think we should fault his ambition in trying to breathe uh, something new into that. Sometimes he fails, especially in his large group portraits, and some of his military figures are a little bit portentous. But And his kids. Don't forget the kids. Well, the kids, you see. Now, the portraits of the kids we would look at today as uh, horribly over-sentimental. But by the standard of the 18th century, I don't think they would see them like that. So we must be wary of judging things by contemporary standards. What What I prefer to do is strip away all the things that we we frown upon and and focus on his technique, which I think you and I can probably agree on. His technique was up there, I think, in a handful of probably the top five British artists in terms of natural ability to wield the brush. He could really do some extraordinary things with oil paint. All right. Um, Well, you said technical there. I thought you were going to mention the problems that he had technically because one of the things everybody knows about Reynolds is that a lot of his pictures are falling off the canvas or or at least the colours are changing and, you know, these faces that are meant to be pink are now white and there are are a lot of technical issues with with Sir Joshua because I I guess he was experimental. You know, this thing that he he adopted, I mean, they call it the grand style, don't they? The grand manner, yeah. The grand manner, yeah. he, He went to Italy, looked at Michelangelo and Raphael and he came back and he tried to paint portraits that are in that same mood of grand renaissance art except it's made in rococo britain and for me that's it's often jarring it's precisely because the rococo mood the mood of the world at the time if you like you know if you look at gainsborough's art you get a clear sense i think of what the rococo was about and then you come across reynolds imposing this rather sort of leaden vision of this grand style the grand manner on art again and it's as if you know, he stuck his hand up and said, stop time. You know, I'm going to go back to the high Renaissance and this is what art should be like. And a lot of his work is like that. You know, I'm a, I'm a naysayer by instinct. There's a lot of people I quite like putting the boot into where I, I like disliking. <laughs> and, and Sir Joshua is definitely one of those. And I don't, just don't like people who've been presidents for as long as he was. You know, it's a, yeah. you, know you, you end up as a dictator of some kind. And after 25 years at the Royal Academy, he definitely did. But where I do like him, okay, is in the informal stuff. So let's talk about that. Let's be nice to him for a minute. I like the self-portraits. They are interesting. I mean, he's painted 20 or 30 self-portraits, isn't it? There's certainly a lot of them. Um, One of his heroes was obviously Rembrandt, right? So Rembrandt painted a lot of self-portraits. So so Joshua, who was also notorious for copying the work of his predecessors. I mean, people used to make cartoons about it, didn't they? They joked about how he liked to borrow poses from the past. But he liked to present himself as new Rembrandt, so he did his self-portraits. But I think the pictures I like best by him are his women. And they're an interesting bunch. I mean, he painted in particular some great actresses, uh, courtesans, uh, women who were the celebrities of their times, as, as someone has quipped since, you know, the Kim Kardashians of the, of the late 18th century Britain, particularly Kitty Fisher. She's been on this podcast before. Kitty Fisher, the most famous courtesan of the times. I mean, he painted her, what, half a dozen times? Um, probably had some kind of affair with her, at least an emotional affair, even if it wasn't physical. And he does do wonderful things with his portraits of women, I have to say that. I mean, they are informal in mood, but they're also underpinned by, oh, you know, desire, isn't it? I mean, that's what it is. I mean, they're, 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 they come on at you a bit in these pictures. Um, and they're by far his best works, I think. I mean, they're the ones I trust the most, the ones I feel are most likely to be showing me a real Joshua Reynolds, rather even than the self-portraits, which are always rather posed. What do you say to that? Well, um, 
I sort of see what you mean about you know the leadenness of some of his most grand manner, grand manner portraits. But if you go and see probably the greatest collection of his female full-length figures at Wadsden House, they're all you know, quite in your face, but they never strike me as leaden. Um, the characters have a great levity and they sort of breathe through the canvas. And I think they're amongst the best examples of portraiture in Britain ever painted. Mm. When you mention the self-portraits, some of them are indeed posed a little bit formal and perhaps everyone can imagine in their mind, and we'll put a picture of it up on the website, his most well-known self-portrait, which is his diploma piece for the Royal Academy. And there he is in his doctoral robes. He got an honorary doctorate and he's standing in front of, um, is it a bust of Michelangelo, I think, isn't it? Buster Michelangelo, absolutely, yeah, based on the Rembrandt, of course. Indeed. So he's trying to sort of cloak himself with all the greatness of his predecessors. And it's it's a picture intended for public display, and it has that kind of barrier that you get with those kind of pictures that don't let you into the real man because he's playing a role. But there are lots of his other self-portraits where they were not intended for public display. And they are, I think, some of the best examples of self-portraiture certainly painted in this country. We'll put a picture again on the website. There is one in a private collection, which I was involved in selling actually some years ago, which was a, a new discovery. It ha mm. hadn't been seen before. It's unfinished. It's a sketch. And it's painted in a, in a really extraordinary colour. It's sort of tones of purple and pink and dark. And, and it's quite Caravage-esque. And it it's absolutely extraordinary, and it could have been painted yesterday. It's, it's absolutely timeless, and you get a real insult into, as I mentioned at the beginning, the vulnerabilities of the man. He was deaf, I think, in one ear. He had a cleft lip. He Later on, he lost his sight in one eye. And, and he was short, wasn't he? He was short. He was five foot five or something, I remember. He was I didn't know that. He was definitely short. He was a, a bachelor. He, he didn't marry. Um, he had unrequited love a number of times in his life. So there is a conflict there between uh, the sort of the, the bombastic uh, formal person that I think he felt he needed to put forward as president of the Royal Academy and painted at the King and the real Reynolds. And the really interesting thing about Reynolds's art is you get both. You get the public facing art for all its faults and you get the intense private stuff, which I think is unsurpassed. That's what I said earlier. I agree with you about the, the less formal stuff. And I don't know the self-portraits as well as you do, because you obviously have studied and have a soft spot for him. I know the one that he is basically a, a sort of paraphrasing of, of Rembrandt, the great Rembrandt of Aristotle studying the bust of Homer, which Reynolds redid as, as me, Reynolds, <laughs> studying <laughs> the bust of Michelangelo. But yeah, I'll keep going back to the women. It's interesting that you say that he, you know, he pointed out he was a bachelor, he never married never had any children. But don't you feel when you look at his Kitty Fishers and things, don't, I mean, don't you feel it? Isn't there just a kind of great big longing there for her? There's one that I remember seeing in Berlin. I think it's a sketch as well, actually, but it's Kitty Fisher as Danae. You know, the great Danae story where Zeus comes down to Danae as a shower of gold. It's, it's Kitty Fisher, topless, um, spread out on a bed with his gold coming down between her legs. I mean, it, it throbs with with stuff doesn't it that picture and as i said for me it's the pictures of women of the actresses all of them really you know mrs siddons as the tragic muse great picture the portraits of nelly o'brien you know the ones where he's basically fancying the women extraordinarily interesting women who surrounded him those are where i think you see a real joshua reynolds um you know and the fact that he was always the first or second artist ever to be knighted wasn't he the first sir joshua or the second sir joshua 
you know, he became this grand establishment figure. And yet all the time bubbling underneath was this other life of his, which you like in his self-portraits. I tend to notice more in his pictures of women. There's no doubt at all that the two things were happening at once. And, and there's also no doubt that it, it's what makes him more interesting than perhaps we sometimes have given him credit for. Good. And I think with all these artists, you, you always have to uh, compare them with what came before them. And there's absolutely no doubt that British portraiture from between about 1700 to 1740 was very stuck in a rut. Um, mm. People like Thomas Hudson, who, you know, bless them, were quite good on their day, but but really quite leaden and stiff. And Reynolds is he's just a breath of fresh air. And I think British art has a lot to be grateful to. Mm. Yes, I think we've done Sir Joshua more than enough justice. And it's time to, to move on because you know what? Everything's been happening this week. It's shocking news from the art world. Ah, shocking news from the art world. Well, not so much shocking, but loads of it. Very, very busy week. There's a few things to get through. Let, let's try and shoot through them. And by the way, American listeners, all seven of you, we're really sorry about this because most of this is British stuff. But just get your map out of Great Britain, look up the towns we're talking about and, and try and follow us if you can. And we'll help you in any way we can. Uh, but first of all, we're going to Coventry. Coventry, a lovely town in the Midlands in Britain, which this year is going to be Britain's city of culture. Now, every four years, Britain chooses a place that's going to be the city of culture. Last time it was Hull. Before that, it was Derry or Londonderry in Northern Ireland. This year, it's Coventry. And the big news is that in this year, when it's the city of culture, the Arts Council collection and the collection of the British Council, they're both going to finally find a permanent home in an old Ikea store in Coventry. Isn't that great, Bendy? Oh, this is absolutely tremendous news. And I'm really excited by this, actually, because um, a theme we've we've touched on a number of times in the podcast before is the London centricity of the art scene in Britain. And isn't it fantastic that the Arts Council collection and I think the British Council collection are going to be put on display in a new museum in Coventry outside London. That's marvellous news. And I read also that the reason the IKEA building has become available is that IKEA, they say that they, they shut it because they made a consistent loss in Coventry. So mm. we say bravo to the people of Coventry. What great taste you have. Um, not only have you seen off IKEA, but you have um, <laughs> the best of uh, 20th century British art heading your way soon. So isn't that great? I think it's really exciting, yes. I mean, the COVID saw off Ikea, didn't it, uh, the big store there. But to have this magnificently big modern space turned into uh, an art gallery is going to be really exciting. I have a really embarrassing admission to make, uh, Bendor. I've never been to the art gallery in Coventry, the Herbert Art Gallery, I believe it's known as. Uh, so I've never actually made it there, which is awful for me. I mean, I'm not a critic of, of the Sunday Times. I should have been everywhere in Britain, but I haven't been there. I've been to Coventry, of course. I've seen the cathedral, the famous cathedral. I've seen the, the Sutherland stuff in there. And, but I've never been to the art gallery. Um, so I'm certainly going to go this year with the big year of, year of culture. But yes, that's so exciting. The Arts Council collection is what, 8,000 plus objects? You know, they've got everybody in there, Francis Bacon, Lucian Freud, mm. uh, and the British Council collection is even better. I mean, that is absolutely choice. They have fantastic things. It's like, I seem to remember there's about, about 100 Peter Blakes, and you know, but that is going to be absolutely transformative. I mean, that mm. is a major new museum. Neither of those things have ever had a permanent home before. They've been mm. kind of traveling, nomadic collections. In now they're gonna have this big new home in a flashy new modern building in Coventry. 
absolutely excellent news. Yeah. I, in fact, I can't remember quite why, but I had once to go to the Arts Council uh, collection to film a painting by Bridget Riley. And wandering around, it, really, most of it in storage, and it just seemed an absolute crime that it didn't have its own permanent place. And so mm. we're all forgetting art house storage on this podcast. We say mm. hurrah to everybody, and we look forward to visiting. Absolutely right. And the same with the British Council. No one ever saw it. So we're all going to Coventry. Of course, the Turner Prize is happening there as well this year. Uh, ever, ever more reason to go there. But that's not all that's happening this week, Bendy. News everywhere. But the really big news, and it's both good and bad, I think, is about museums reopening in England. Again, American listeners, sorry about this. It's all about British museums, but they mean something really important to us. We're all hoping they're going to open very soon. But we've been delayed, haven't we, Bendy? They're not going to open until May the 17th, is it? I mean, that's miles ahead of us. It's a bit too late, isn't it? Well, there's been some uh, discord about this in the in the British art world uh, because um, shops will be opening earlier than museums. And this is considered a, a slight, perhaps, by the government against the cultural and museum sector. I have to say, I, as much as I really want to get back to museums, I can't get that um, enraged by this decision. For me, I think you could probably see this the other way around. Maybe we're opening shops a bit too early. I, I just coming at it from a sense that we reopened everything far too early last summer and last spring, and we really paid the price for that with, with our second wave. Um, so I, I, I think it's probably best that we, we try to avoid the same mistakes. And if that means going a little bit more cautiously and us all having to be a little bit more patient, then so be it. But they're talking about opening private art galleries on April the 12th because they qualify as private places. So they fall into the same category as shops and hairdressers. I mean, that's what's ridiculous about it is that private art galleries, which are actually far less easy to control than museums because there's no guards telling you not to stand next to somebody. And, and you know, there's far more of a free-for-all going on inside private galleries they can open, but not museums. And yet museums, which have already had a lot of practice at guiding us through in COVID conditions. Let's not forget that in the periods between lockdowns, museums were open and they all got terribly good at shoveling you through, keeping you two metres apart, giving you a journey to go through. They got incredibly good and precise at, at leading us through. To me, it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if the private art galleries are open on April the 12th, there is no reason on earth to keep the museums shut till May the 17th. Well, we'll just have to see how it goes. I, I don't know how safe big museums are because you, you get lots of people in there. I don't know if they're that well ventilated. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's sad, but maybe inevitable. All I can say is that the one time I did emerge from my Scottish isolation last year, um, I spent two days in London and I spent a few hours in the National Gallery and at somewhere along the way, I got COVID. I'm not saying I got it in the National Gallery, but <laughs> it, I might have done. Um, so take care, everybody. This is personal with you. You think you got COVID at the National Gallery. No, I don't. I and don't. so you're holding it back for the rest of us now. <laughs> have you had your jab, though, haven't you? I haven't had my jab. Have you had yours? I've had mine. Yeah, well, England's ahead of Scotland in the jabbing, isn't it? I mean, we're unleashing the vaccine programme at a vast lick, aren't we? We're, we're doing yeah. so well with yeah, that. Because you're, in, you're mean, only a few months older than me. Well, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've had, uh, I've had the jab and... Um, Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I suppose what's what I'm really saying here, Bendy, and I guess you've got to agree with me on this. I am so desperate for some <laughs> decent art to look at. I of can't course, tell yeah. you how hungry I'm getting for it. Oh, dear me, what a strain it's been. Mm. Still, 
there are other things to consider in the business of going around uh, museums, aren't there? Um, I think you've got something coming up that is important and very relevant. Yes, well, now that museums are getting ready to reopen, it seems like a good moment to really think how we reach out to people who might not always have felt welcome in our public galleries before. Because despite the success of the vaccine programme, I suspect we probably can't go back to the old model of museums uh, cramming in ever-increasing numbers of visitors. And I wonder if that might be a good thing, especially for those people for whom getting into and around a museum is not as easy as it is for the rest of us. The Interview I recently came across some research by an organisation called Vocalise, which I hadn't heard of before, uh, but they're a charity which helps make museums accessible for people who are blind and partially sighted. And their research highlighted just how far we have to go to make our museums really accessible for the disabled and the visually impaired. So for our interview this week, I talked to Joanna Wood. She's a historian based at the University of Oxford and is also the Chair of Trustees at Vocal Eyes. A lifelong museum goer, she started losing her sight in 2014. And I began by asking her about some of the challenges she now faces when she wants to visit an art gallery. So maybe the easiest way is, why don't I take you through the process that would get me to a piece of work in a major London gallery? Uh -huh. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go on the gallery website yeah. because for anyone blind or visually impaired, going anywhere is a fairly major undertaking. It requires planning and I'm not going to launch out unless I'm in the air already. I'm not going to launch out to a gallery unless I know that there's something for me, okay. something accessible, something that I can access and enjoy. Can you give us an idea of, of how good, say, um, the national galleries are in this country at providing that information, you know, are you, are you always able to get over that first hurdle? Over half don't have anything. Gosh. And of the half that do, it's very mixed. Right. So the chances of you having the information you need before you go. So that's a barrier already. You might right. not even choose to go because there's nothing that tells you that there's something for you yeah. there. Yeah. And that's it. So 70% of the visually impaired and blind people we speak to, if there's not something on the website, they're probably not going to go to the gallery. Right. So that's in if we're thinking about um, who we're getting through our doors, that's 70% of one particular audience yes. won't probably come if they yes. if there's nothing on the website that indicates that they're welcome, that, you know, they've been thought about or that they can just go and actually enjoy. Why, why am I going to travel up to London with everything that involves, including accessing transport? You know, there's a lot of planning that goes into that booking access at train stations. Yes. If when I finally get there, I can't find anything <laughs> okay. or the things I do find um, don't tell me anything. So that's, that's clearly an area we, we need a lot of work on. Um, yeah. Assuming you have got over that first barrier and you, you get to the doors, um, yeah. what's, what's then good and bad awaiting you? So I get to the front door. The first thing is going to be finding an accessible entrance. Uh, I have a small amount of usable vision, which translates to I have blurry shape and color in the center of one eye. That does not translate to finding the front door of any gallery. So I'm going to try and find the accessible entrance, which will have a push button to open the doors. I've got stuck in numerous revolving doors at galleries. That's just become a part of the experience. Yeah. So I'm now in the atrium of this gallery. Mm -hmm. And my first challenge, uh, if there's been a lot of information online, it might have told me where to go, but 
but if there's not been a huge amount online in terms of guiding you into the building, I'm going to aim for the first thing that resembles a desk, um, a welcome desk. And here's where it either goes really right or really wrong. Regardless of how much accessible material you've got in your gallery, if that front of house experience results in silence, confusion, embarrassment, simply not knowing what's there and not knowing who to call to ask about what's there, that can end the visit straight away. And I have ended visits in galleries and museums simply because I haven't been able to get past that front desk. Yeah. But there's also great, there are also great galleries out there whose front of house staff are amazing. They're very plugged into what's going on and they'll be able to tell you exactly where to go. They might um, get one of their volunteers or gallery guides to guide you there. And they'll be able to tap you into the accessible material, whether that's audio described material, tactile diagrams. Some museums or galleries have a tactile map and they'll give that to you at the front desk or they might have a large print guide or even a braille guide sometimes. Okay. So again, let's go best case. Let's say I've got something to work towards. So I know that I need to head to a particular room and I know that in that room, I'll be able to access audio description of the piece of art. Mm -hmm. And that audio description might be, it might be preloaded online. So I might be accessing that on the gallery website on my smartphone. It might, I might've been given an audio described headset that I can press a button when I get to the specific gallery. Or I might have something very fancy, which would be a Bluetooth triggered audio guide, which is just going to trigger automatically when it reaches the right piece of oh, art. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about the importance of audio description? Now, uh, someone like um, Wildy and I might think, since we, we do a podcast talking about art, where you can't actually see the pictures, and we, we try and describe these, we might imagine that we're quite good at audio describing art, but I suspect we're not. Can you can you tell, talk us through the sort of, uh, the, the specific skill set you would need to describe, say, Turner's fighting Temeraire to a visually impaired person? Well, I think you guys are doing yourselves a disservice because actually something I was going to say is that there's often a lot of access that people don't realise is access. So right. the wall on your podcast is a great example where that's something really accessible to me, but you've probably never dreamed about marketing that as something accessible to blind and visually impaired audiences. And you, you've got a lot in common with galleries where they will have content like that, but they haven't thought about it in access terms. So that's tucked away on a different area of the website. So, you, you, you know, your description skills, I, I've listened, you know, your description skills on the wall are good. So don't do yourself down. But it is it is a skill. It's and it's an art form in its own right. So you're going to have audiences who have different asks. And that's quite a hard thing to get across in one piece of audio description. So some people will want very much to catch, have the aesthetics captured for them. Um, they won't necessarily be that interested in the art history. They won't necessarily want to understand the technical detail, the composition. I've got friends who really love the clinical, very detached height. And you know, if we're talking about statue weight materials, yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. For me, I want to, what I'm looking for is a way into that emotional connection that a piece of art used to bring me when I could see. And I'm wanting the audio description to get me to that emotional point that I can, you know, I'm also, I'm really interested in the history and having the painting decoded for me, but I am mm -hmm. looking to have that 
emotional experience that I think someone looking at a piece of art gets. So our describers have a really tall task to complete. And the way they do it is they're very knowledgeable about the pieces of art they describe. They often come from an art history or gallery background. They're going to pull out what it is that they understand or they feel to be important about the painting. So the thing that you need to walk away having known, having captured, they're gonna pull out the things that are gonna be very apparent to anybody visually accessing the painting. So to Mm -hmm. provide that equality of access, but they're also going to, and this is where the art form comes into describing, they're gonna somehow get across what it feels like to stand and look at that painting. You know, if we're talking about Turner's seascapes, they're gonna get across, you know, you're almost by the end of it gonna be hearing the sea and the crashing of the waves. You're gonna be tasting the salt in the air. You might hear the occasional seagull, or maybe that's just because I live by the coast. So I'm always hearing seagulls. And that's, that's what's really amazing about audio description. That's what takes it out from being a clinical alternative or equivalent to what you're seeing. It's, It's so much more than that. It gets you to that amazing thing that art can do for us which is it it does something to your insides when you're looking at it and the great thing is you don't need to look at it to do that you can listen to it to do that that's so interesting and i can imagine it really must be like an art form when it's done well um poetry in a way can is it a cliche to say to think that music might be a part of it or sounds or do you just want the words I'm smiling, Bendel, because I love that question. And this is, again, this is very personal. I think it's really important to say that I'm one visually impaired person speaking. Everybody has different um, needs, but also really different preferences when it comes to what they want from audio description. But for me personally, I'm really interested in what I would call a creative equivalent to what I get when I look at a piece of art. So alongside the description I've just talk to you through. I love when I also maybe some somebody's chosen a piece of music or have you know included a poem that's either been written in response to the piece or maybe is from the same time period and captures something about what the, the painting or the piece of art also gets across. And the reason I love that creative equivalent is that music or other forms of art can help you get at that emotional connection that you would have visually with a piece of art. Um, just to go back to the, the practicalities of that, I mean, if I imagine myself going around a gallery with an audio guide at the moment, um, I see a painting I'm interested in, I look at the label and I see a tiny little number which says, press this on your audio guide, which I imagine must be very difficult for someone in your position. So um, you mentioned Bluetooth earlier, is there a system that, that museums and galleries can take off the shelf, which which makes it easy for you to go around uh, an institution almost self-guided? It's a great question. And this is the tech question. And you'll find that when galleries are thinking about access, they often jump straight to, is there a technological new innovation that can solve this for us? Mm-hmm. And partially, yes. Uh, the thing I talked about were Bluetooth beacons, which can trigger an automated audio guide when you get within range of the beacon. But it's slightly imprecise. If you think about a gallery where you've got paintings that are quite tightly packed, it's gonna struggle to distinguish if you've got audio description for each painting, which is unlikely in itself, but let's say for argument's sake you did, the Bluetooth beacons are gonna struggle to distinguish whether you've moved 
one foot to the left or right for that particular painting. The a great audio um, guide alternative that doesn't require so much technology can be one that puts in description of how to move around the gallery with the description of the paintings. So rather than relying on you knowing that you're in front of the tiny numeral one, it will have told you to walk several paces to your left and then press number, you know, then press number one and it will have that description built in. That can be another way. Um, alongside the tiny numbers, something really funny that I'm always made aware of when I go with people to galleries is that they'll often braille those numbers, which I find as a braille, as someone who loves braille and uses braille, I find braille in inappropriate places yes. really, really amusing because the thought somebody has tried to think about access but hasn't thought about how would I know that braille's there? Yes. And then obviously the galleries are not going to want me running my hands over the walls that also contain the turner right next yeah. to it. So yeah. it's it's joining up those dots sometimes. And I think the other alternative we haven't really spoken about is there, you know, there are tours run specifically, audio described live tours run. And that's one way of getting around how do you know where you are in order to press the audio guide problem, which is you're part of a tour, the describer is going to lead you around the room. Yeah. And we need both of those because we need the ability to go to a gallery independently and access art, but also to have the chance to do so in a group that in an event that's designed specifically for blind and visually impaired people. Okay. So if in an age of say limited resource, um, would you, and, and you had the choice of two, this is, this is a false choice, probably. I'm just yeah. trying to get an idea of your priorities here. Would you rather museums and galleries, say, focused on an hour a day where everything was absolutely dedicated to you and you had the run of the place and uh, the assistance you need? Or would you rather they put the resource into making it so that you could go along with everybody else, uh, despite the fact that it might be quite busy and some further challenges in there? That is a great question, and I'm going to be very unfair and say we need both. And the reason I say we need both is that having specific events targeted at blind and visually impaired people, for a lot of people, that's the only way they're going to be able to access a gallery. They might need to come with a companion, and it might just be that there is no way that even with a companion, they could think about coming into the gallery when it's full of people and it's really busy. So those specific events are really, really important you know, in terms of equality of access. And also they're, they're one of the, they're probably the most, the highest quality form of access to the art you're going to get because they have so much built into them. Mm -hmm. So they really are, they can be the gold standard. But as a grumpy, fairly grumpy mid thirties person who somehow desperately is still trying to cling on to the idea that I can just bomb around the world as I used to mm -hmm. and do things I want. And I think I have the right to be able to pop into, you know, pop into one of the London galleries when I've got an hour to spare between meetings yeah. and be able to do something. I'm not, we're being reasonable. I'm not asking for every single painting to be described at this point. Yeah. I just want one out of the thousands of pieces of art to have a description so that I can go and I can spend a few minutes like everyone else, just in the presence of something incredible and be connected be connected to everybody else who's in there at the time, but also everyone else who's connected with that painting or piece of art beforehand. Fascinating. What a nice sounding woman she was as well. I and mean, that was really interesting. Of course, it's something those of us who, who aren't visually impaired don't think about enough. I mean, 
to our shame we, we we take it for granted don't we most of us we wander into the museums we wander around and we just don't think about these kinds of issues um but you know what although a lot of what she says i'm sure we'll go back on it as well a lot of what she says is, is very important and very instructive almost the thing that i like best here was her stuff about about emotional involvement with art how she liked to hear music and how she liked to hear poetry because it gave her a sense of of the arts, of the artworks communion with you, you know, the, the way it impacts on you. And, and you know what, it's so easy to forget about that. We live in a world where so much stuff just gets talked about in terms of theory and dates and facts and all that. And we just, we just forget that actually art in the end, the reason we love it is because we go there and it launches this emotional attack on us mm. and then moves us to somewhere else and transports us. It was wonderful to be reminded of that by, by someone who I hadn't expected to be, to be reminded um, by. Yeah, I thought it was so fascinating listening to how I would never have imagined how much art can be made to mean to someone who has lost their sight or who is losing their sight. And what was so encouraging to me was how relatively straightforward it can be. If we just spend a little bit of time writing some good text for an audio description, then recording it nicely and making it accessible, then the same, as you say, the same emotional intensity and connection that you and I get from a work of art with, we're so lucky to have our, our perfect sight, then that can also be experienced by someone who can't see as well as we can. And, and that's a wonderful thing that we can achieve with a little bit of a dedication thought and some technology. Um, and I thought, as Joe said, really importantly, a lot of this stuff is quite easy to fix. It just needs uh, someone within all these institutions in everything they do to think, how can we make this accessible to people who can't see and who can't get around as well as we can? And once you have that mindset, it's quite an easy problem to solve. And, and as Joe was saying, you know, sometimes just for want of a bit of a text on a website, she and people like her feel shut out of museums. Well, I think now that we are... Um, reopening museums and we're off the back of a model where museums only a few months ago had to specify right down to the last inch on their website where people had to go and how they could move around a museum under covid conditions well they just need to think about how they can do that for for people who are, are blind and visually impaired and and we can make the whole museum experience so much better for everybody as you say, it's a relatively doable and easy thing once you've focused on it and, and made a decision to do it. The other thing I was thinking of, I, I, there are some museums that make available sculpture for people who are, who are partially sighted or blind. And you can just go and, and touch sculpture, which I think is wonderful. I mean, if in, in, my, in my book, all sculpture in museums should probably be available to people to touch if, if they want to, and they're partially sighted or if they you know, get something out of it. I mean, it's ridiculous how much a fetishized overcare is done <laughs> in, in, these sorts of, in these sorts of worlds. Yeah. I mean, something like the statue of Ramses II in the British Museum, you know, which is made out of granite that you can't cut into um, unless you'd soar away for it for 10 years you know yeah. you're not allowed to touch it it was ridiculous so you know if someone comes along and wishes to feel it and see it that way why on earth shouldn't they be allowed to do so you just need a system in place for that yeah. but it also occurred to me that that appreciation of art that way of knowing art by touching it by re being really close to it by feeling it is of course also the opposite of a way that we're getting a lot of art nowadays which is on the screen Mm. See, we are living at a time when so much art information is being passed to us on the internet. And all we see are the screens. We mm. just see the image. 
And what we lose is precisely this. It's a sense of the textures of art, the size of art, because things on a screen look completely different size to what they are in real life. You know, it's something else we can gain, if you like, from the world of you know, people who, who come to museums with disabilities or, or issues with their sight, um, is just that we too need, in a way, to be more aware of the reality of art and to be less dependent, I think, on on screens and, and on the information that screens give. Apart from anything else, if you're photogenic in art, if you're art that looks good on a screen, that does give you an advantage that other sorts of art doesn't have. It doesn't make you better art, but it does make you more televisually effective art. In a way, it's distorting the progress of art as well, I think. Mm, yeah, interesting. Well, you mentioned seeing um, art on screens, actually. That, that's something I'm always banging on about is uh, the restrictions that some museums, especially in the UK, put on the images that they put on their websites. And they do that because they want to restrict the ability of people to use high resolution photos because they like to claim they can make money by charging for those to, to be published in books. Now, that highlights to me actually how ableist a lot of British museums are. Because if you are not able to get to a museum, you are dependent on the images on the website. And if you go to Tate's website, for example, you can only ever really see low resolution pictures um, of the art there. And I think that's, mm. that's really prejudicial to people who can't physically get to our museums. I know that's one of your causes and it's one that I totally support. You're absolutely right. I mean, of course, particularly with stuff that isn't in copyright, it's a, what a cheek to be barring people from looking at Renaissance art in, in the high degree of quality that you should look at it. Yeah. Um, and the good news is that there are charities like Vocalize out there who will help museums to fix all these issues, and it doesn't take much. They're there to do training and provide all sorts of guidance. Um, so go on their website and see how they can help you. There you are, museums. Um, good advice from Bendy. Yes, it all proves that museums are not perfect. Um, however, you and I are in a position to deal with perfection in museums and art because we have our imaginary museum to go to. We've got our museum without walls where we can choose anything we want to hang in our home during these periods of lockdown. Just stuff we can lie back and enjoy. On the Wall Ah, on the wall, on the shelf, in the garden, in the bath, wherever we want, we can look at our stuff, can't we, Bendy? Because it's not real, it's all imaginary, it's just us having it for a bit. Um, what have you What have you chosen this week, then? What, what are you going to delight us with? I've chosen a portrait of King Henry VIII, uh, by or after, and I'll come to that in a moment, Hans Holbein the Younger. It's an oil on panel uh, portrait. It's 89 by 75 centimetres, and it hangs in the Galleria Nazionale d'Arte Antica in Rome. It's a half-length portrait. Henry is standing full frontal in a gold cloak, a fur-lined gold cloak against a blue background, and um, absurdly broad shoulder pads. Uh, a 1980s power suit has nothing on what Henry's wearing here. But of course, the point, the point of a picture like this was to make the king uh, physically imposing. Uh, we've touched on tallness already. In fact, Henry VIII was six foot three, but uh, he was considerably broader than me. He was huge. And portraits like this had to make him look even huger if that was possible. Now, uh, the pose uh, derives from a full-length portrait of Henry VIII, full frontal, arms akimbo, by Holbein, which was the, the celebrated Whitehall mural. 
Uh, this was painted in 1537 in Whitehall Palace in London, and it showed Henry VIII, his dad behind him, Henry VII, and their respective wives, um, Elizabeth of York, and at the time it was painted Elizabeth Seymour for Henry VIII. But sadly, this was destroyed by fire in 1697. We do have a cartoon, a, a preparatory drawing for the left-hand part of the mural, but this painting in Rome is the closest we get to a painted depiction of, of what that Whitehall mural looked like. And we have recorded from the experience of people who stood before the Whitehall mural um, in the time of Henry VIII that, that they physically trembled in front of it. Because you can imagine with, with Holbein's sense of extraordinary realism and Henry VIII standing with, with a great gold shiny jacket, huge six foot three in front of you and enormously wide, that... You, you probably would never have seen anything like that before in your life. And you could quite easily have, have felt that you might have been seeing some sort of strange apparition. Um, mm. So uh, unfortunately, the original has been destroyed. Now, this portrait in Rome, the reason I want to have it on my wall for a few weeks uh, as we, we enter the final stretch of the lockdown is because this picture has, in, in recent Holbein literature, has been downgraded from being by the man himself and is sometimes called a studio replica. But, but I've spent quite a bit of time looking at it in the um, art gallery in Rome. I think it's got a good chance of actually being by Holbein. Um, in fact, I was quite friendly with the great Holbein scholar, uh, John Rowlands, um, after he published his um, catalogue resume where he downgraded the painting. And he used to say to me, I'm preparing to have to wear sackcloth over this one. I think he was preparing to change his mind over the attribution. Um, now, when it's in my gallery at home here, I will inspect it closely with my magnifying glass. I will get out my little portable infrared camera and look for signs of, of underdrawing underneath and try and make up my mind as to who I think actually painted it. Mm. Well, do you know what, Bendy? If I can work it some way, I'm going to come up and find you in front of it there with your microscope and your camera and probably argue with you about this because there are two things that I want to mention about it. Well, three things. First of all, Henry VIII by Holbein. What a great achievement. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Henry VIII was invented by Holbein to any real purpose. The reason we're all obsessed with the Tudors, the reason we have this endless stuff going on about Henry and his wives and all the rest of it is because of Holbein. You know, he gave us an image on which we can hang all these various Tudor fantasies of ours. Um, and without him, you know, there would be far less stuff on the television. There'd be no Lucy Worsley. There'd be more room for me on the BBC. <laughs> all kinds of great things would have happened if Holbein hadn't painted Henry VIII in this memorable, brilliant a fashion as he did. And of course, the, the Whitehall cartoon that you talk about, the preparatory drawing for the Whitehall fresco, and that was hanging in the National Gallery for quite a while, wasn't it, recently, next to the ambassadors and the other Holbein pictures there, the portrait of Christina of Denmark. Um, it was wonderful to see it there. Um, so that's one thing. Okay. Second thing, there is a wonderful version of the full length based on the Whitehall fresco, in Liverpool at the Walker Art Gallery. It's exactly this period. It's either studio of or something better than that. It is Henry VIII in his full length pose, standing there doing all those things that you described. It's undoubtedly painted at that time. And I know about it because I've stood in front of it and tried to basically mimic the pose in one of my films. And it's also a highly respected, probably, probably studio work, but it does give you a very clear sense of what the Whitehall mural would have looked like. 
And my third point, I don't remember the Barberini picture that well. You know it better than I do. I have seen it, but I don't remember it that well. But uh, why would Holbein have painted it in a kind of three-quarter length like that? Why would he have cut off the legs and the rest of it had it been an autograph work? It doesn't seem to me to make an awful lot of sense. I mean, I can imagine him doing um, a portrait head, like the great one, which I, I think is unarguably the Holbein Henry VIII, which is the one in, in Madrid, isn't it? The, the Thiessen portrait, which is lovely. I can imagine him doing a head, yeah, but I can't imagine him doing a weird three-quarters with no arms and no legs. I mean, it doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense to me as a thing that is an original as opposed to something that's copied from the fresco itself by studio of etc so those would be my arguments i bow to you on the subject of holbein of course i do but those and it's a tricky world we all know that the whole world of what holbein did and what he didn't do is very 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 tricky but um you know good luck to you when you're looking at it very studiously and very carefully i hope you find the real thing but i suspect you won't <laughs> well it's it's quite dirty i might even have to get my uh, my solvents and swabs out so that's why you have to be here to wrestle them away from me <laughs> oh talking of which by the way we didn't mention this but i do remember you know so joshua reynolds used to do this you know he used to destroy pictures in order to work out how they were painted yeah there was a famous Votto and he cleaned the surface off bit by bit by bit just so he could work out exactly how it was made yes. and ended up with a ruined a ruined Votto. He used to do that, I think, to Titians because they, back in the 18th century, they used to think that uh, the Venetians had some sort of magic formula and that's how they got their colours so vivid. But if there's any consolation, uh, Reynolds, uh, like a lot of artists, actually was a terrible connoisseur. So his Titians weren't actually Titians. Oh, there you are. That is that is a, well. It doesn't surprise me, but it is a it is a mild consolation. <laughs> and your Holbein may not be a Holbein, but then then again, who, it doesn't matter really because all these images have done their work. They've created the Tudor fest that we live in. They've been very successful. But I'm sticking with you on the subject of royalty, on the subject of artistic grandeur and excitement and pomposity those kinds of things um the only thing is i'm switching locations so i'm going away from hampton court away from the tudor world and i am going to istanbul mm -hmm. yes istanbul and there's two reasons for that one is that we've got a listener in istanbul wrote to me on twitter recently pointing out that they love listening to the podcast so hello melanie in istanbul um i hope you're listening to this now but the other reason Bling. I love a bit of bling. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and there are times in life when the complete uselessness of beautiful jewellery stops being completely useless and starts to do something wonderful to you. It lifts the spirit. It engorges the eyes. It just makes you feel not that, like you're holding a million dollars, but you are a million dollars. There's something intoxicating about useless but beautiful bling and there are times in life when you just need that crazy intoxication that slap around the face with aesthetics and for me the few times that i really remember it working on me that way have often involved great big jewelry great big masses of stuff and bling and the best place in the world to go for that is the top carpi museum in istanbul bling heaven and in particular, emeralds. Now, I don't know where you stand on emeralds, but I would lie down in the middle of the road and have cars run over me for an emerald. You know, they are the most gorgeous, green, intoxicating stones. And my choice, which is called famously the Topkapi Dagger, 
has five of these whopping great emeralds in it. Three in the hilt, one on the end, and one on the top. From Columbia, beautiful stones. There's also 53 diamonds. It's the most wonderful creation. I'm going to tell you more about it, but first of all, I just want to hear you going ooh and ah in response to the beauty of it. <laughs> Jewelry has never really done it for me, Maldi. Oh, hmm? oh, I don't believe you. You search inside yourself, Bendor, for the, the love of pearls and diamonds and rubies and gold it's in there it's in there i can see it in your eyes no no there's a family story um that uh, my my great grandmother had a whole lot of extremely valuable jewels um and we thought these things were tremendously important and they were shiny and blingy and when we had them valued uh, it turns out that the stones had been replaced by her <laughs> <laughs> her um her second husband who who said oh darling i'll just go and get these clean for you and had, had nicked the stones and sold them and of course we never knew the difference so you know what's, what's to worry that about? tells you a lot about the social history of the grove and there's <laughs> nothing about the, the wonder of bling absolutely nothing so yes the top carpy dagger um it was made in um the 1730s i think it was for sultan mohammed the first who was going to give it as a gift to the iranian shah the the emperor of Iran at the time, but there were various wars going on, and the dagger never made it to him, and it's, he made it came back to Istanbul, and there it is now uh, today in the Topkapi Museum. It's just a gorgeous thing. I mean, amazing craftsmanship. It's a sort of curved dagger with these three huge emeralds in the hilt. So you grab the emeralds when you hold the dagger. There's lots of sort of symbolism going on in it as well there's flower pictures and bits of cosmos um the, the hilt is made of gold the scabbard is made of gold and all the craftsmanship is on show so much so that there was a famous movie made i mean have you heard of the the movie top copy have, have, have you seen it heard it that is i'm ashamed to say that's the only reason i know about the top copy dagger because i have seen the film which is a fairly eccentric film although it has a great performance by peter Ustinov. Which for which he won an Oscar, didn't oh, he? Yeah. Best supporting actor. Yeah, so the film is like the first great heist movie. They steal the Top Carpi dagger, yeah. this particular dagger. And it put the Top Carpi Museum on the map, it put the dagger on the map. It was a great film. It's it's a funny film. I enjoyed watching it. And it definitely loosened me up a bit. So that when I went to the Top Carpi Museum, you know, I was like everybody else, saying, Where's the Top Carpi dagger? So you had a you what had a I... plan for stealing it in your mind already. <laughs> No, no, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, I, you know, I have a plan for seeing it now. This is the great thing about on the wall. I can steal it for a week and no one's going to arrest me. It's mine. It's mine. Um, but no, when, when I went to see it, having been loosened up and beaten up a bit by Top Carpy Museum, what astonished me is how much better it is than I thought it would be. You know, these emeralds, they're from Colombia, the best mine in Colombia at the time. They've got this green magic to them that just glows at you. All that gold, the diamonds are perfectly arranged. I mean, it just makes you drunk. It makes your eyes drunk. It makes your spirit drunk. It makes your soul drunk. I want to be drunk at the moment. I've got the top carpy dagger. I don't need Peter Ustinov to steal it for me. You know, I'm perfectly entitled to it according to the rules of On the Wall. Come on, Bendy. Isn't that amazing? Good. I'll come down and see it. Um, put some paste in there and we'll flog the stones and live a oh, life of variety. Oh dear, you're a heartless, heartless man. Fortunately, I don't have to listen to it anymore because that's the end of the podcast, the end of your heartlessness. Yes, we've had fun. It's, it's been very busy, but for now, it's goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. <laughs>
Woldy and Bendy.